Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our own solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. This month, Andrew's going to discuss some of the weirdest and most controversial planets that we've ever hypothesised and found. I will talk about the bizarre dimmings of the star Kick 8462852, and Hannah will cover all the explanatory news from the last month. But first, let's meet our exocasters. So Andrew Rushby studies planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth at NASA Ames in California. Hannah Wakeford studies the clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C. And introducing the show was Hugh Osborne, who hunts the transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK. Now, first up, Andrew, you're going to give us a little rundown of some of the weirdest and most controversial planets that we found thus far. Indeed. Uh, well, here at Exocast, I like to think that we, uh, we love all planets equally. Uh, and that's from the familiar rocky surfaces of the planets of the inner solar system and the gas giants of the distant reaches of our star's dominion to the weird, wacky and wonderful worlds that we've discovered um, and have hi- hypothesized around other stars in our galactic neighborhood. So these are the slightly strange and enigmatic denizens of the dark distant and dusty corners of parameter space. And these are the worlds that I want to talk about today. Uh, The outliers of planetary peculiarity that seem to push the universes of science and science fiction just a little closer together. So we expect that the vast majority of planets will be, for the most part, recognizable as such, probably. Um, Rocky, gassy, icy. However, there are some more unusual cases where the rules of the planet club are just pushed a little bit. Quite often on Exocast, we have discussed the fact that despite the diversity of our eight planets and multitude of minor planets, asteroids, comets, and moons, the solar system is definitely missing some representatives of all the potential geysers in which planets may come. It was only once we started looking to other stars to see what planets they were hiding did we realize that perhaps the solar system is a bit unusual. Um, We we don't, for example, have a confirmed, anyway, super-Earth-sized world, nor a hot Jupiter, for example, despite these being fairly common in the galaxy. Just a straight mix of terrestrial and gas giants with some pretty sweet lunar companions and a smattering of minor planets in between and beyond. We don't have any double planets orbiting each other, unless you count Pluto and Charon, maybe. Um, Of course, we can't have any circumbinary planets because these need two stars to orbit, nor do we have any nearby or uh, rogue or free-floating worlds either. So these are dark, uh, cold and lonely interstellar wanderers that were ejected from their star systems um, by gravitational perturbations, or perhaps were never even bound to a star and are now destined to traverse the interstellar void as starless nomads. There may be billions of these rogue planets in the galaxy, uh, and given their nature, dark and cold, they are fairly difficult to discover using some of the techniques like transit photometry or radial velocity we're familiar with here on the show. It's not all gloomy out there in the depths of the cosmos, however, as there are some instances where these rogue wandering planets may remain fairly warm depending on their atmospheric composition, and some of the more massive free-floating objects have even been discovered to have their own protoplanetary disks that may well be forming a little family of planets in their midst. 
On top of that, estimates suggest that they may actually outnumber gravitationally bound planets by anywhere between two and a hundred thousand to one, making free-floating worlds the primary paradigm of planetary existence. That's a big. That's a big range, uh, and it's obviously quite controversial. Uh, and I think we we probably need a bit more research before we can make definitive estimates about that. But they're certainly out there, and they're not rare. What does the hundred thousand come from? Uh, hundred thousand rogue planets. Uh, to every single bound gravitational planet, uh, apparently, uh, is the number I, I found floating around. Is that considering brown dwarfs as well, or are um, we talking just planetary It may mass? well be. It was, no, it was planetary mass objects, which is a new term that I've discovered. So planemos, which can be anywhere from, you know, kind of lunar-sized all the way up to, like, sub-brown dwarfs. Okay, I wonder, so, what, I wonder what population that extrapolation clearly comes from, because we definitely don't have a thousand discovered planetary mass free-floating. No, I assumed, I assumed it was a scaling I up. guess the smaller ones, the moon-sized ones, you don't, you don't find. Um, but yeah, when you, when you have a range between two and a hundred thousand... Uh, I think it suggests that the the science is certainly out on that matter. But anyway, um, there's still many ways in which a planet can be a bit bizarre, even while orbiting a star. Uh, Consider, for example, the Chthonian planets. So these are a hypothetical class of objects that result from the intensive stripping away of a gas giant's hydrogen and helium atmosphere, as well as its outer layers, through hydrodynamic escape as a result of being just a bit too close to its star. So the remaining rocky or metallic core could resemble the terrestrial planet in many respects. Uh, and there are even some potential examples of this class in the Kepler or Korot catalogue. Uh, but these remained unconfirmed to date. I wonder, however, if we really know enough about the internal workings of gas giants to make a definitive claim on the nature of their stripped cores. And I think Hannah probably thinks that we don't. And I see her shaking Well, her we wouldn't have designed an entire mission called Juno to go to Jupiter and find out what it core is made of if we had any clue because exactly. in all honesty they're saying that they're gonna the uncertainty on whether or not jupiter has a core is a hundred percent they're hoping to bring that down to like 10 <laughs> <laughs> so yeah another know. reason why why juno is a wonderful uh, mission for exoplanet science as well exactly. as, as jupiter science Um, So further to those, there are also some compositionally weird worlds that have been hypothesized to exist out there. Um, So while the rocky planets in our solar system are primarily made out of silicon and oxygen, it remains theoretically possible for planets enriched in carbon and depleted in silicon and oxygen to exist if they formed from a protoplanetary disk that was representative of this mix. These carbon-rich worlds would make for very different planetary environments should they exist. They may well be hazy from an atmosphere of carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide uh, and have a surface coating of tars um, that would make the planet seem dark and red. If warm enough, a hypothetical hydrological cycle of sorts may even be driven by rivers and lakes of oils and raindrops of long-chain hydrocarbon compounds rather than water, which itself would be relatively depleted. So Saturn's moon Titan is a potential uh, analogue for this kind of planet, although it's much smaller and colder than some carbon planets may be. Um, However, these planets will probably be difficult to characterise as their radii may be similar to silicon oxygen planets of the same mass. Um, uh, One potential 
uh, candidate for this class does exist, uh, potentially. Um, this is 55 Cancer E, which hit the headlines back in 2012 when researchers controversially claimed that instead of water and granite, the planet, which boasts a surface temperature of over 2,000 Kelvin, would be covered by graphite and diamond. So us here at the Exocast studio remain a bit sceptical of that claim, I feel. But still, fascinating to think about. Um, so sometimes it's not what you're made of necessarily that counts, but how you're made in the first place. So take, for example, the coreless worlds. These are planets that are essentially just a big rocky mantle with no metal core uh, and are hypothesized to form from unaltered, already oxidized, water-rich materials at some distance from the host star where temperatures are cool. Or in the unusual case where any iron incorporated into the, the body is, a, is oxidized and bound up and trapped in the mantle before it's able to differentiate and form a rocky core. Again, these planets will be difficult to distinguish from cord planets as their mass to radius ratio might be quite similar. We don't have an example of this type of planet yet, but it's theoretically possible that they exist. So conversely, the iron planet has very little in the way of a rocky mantle at all. So this is a class of planet which is actually represented in the solar system in the form of Mercury which is the closest to and most dense of all the worlds orbiting the Sun. So iron-rich exoplanets larger than Mercury are thought to exist around other stars and some potential candidates have already been identified from the Kepler catalogue. So these characteristic bodies may be actually easier to spot as they are very dense and therefore would have a larger mass for a given radii uh, than a mixed rock-iron planet like the Earth, as well as also boasting a strong magnetic field and probably little evidence of plate tectonics. So desert, ocean, ice, lava, like a planetary elemental, we expect worlds representing the full range of possible temperature and water contents to exist among the billions in the galaxy. So from the dry, desolate deserts of water-depleted planets that have long been the setting of fantastical science fiction adventures to the boundless, awesome depths of planet-wide ocean worlds. Imagine scaling up some of the distant, distant minor planets and moons like Enceladus, Triton or Pluto in our solar system into massive, brilliantly bright planetary scale deep freezes comprised of a thick global cryosphere of solid volatiles like water, ammonia, CO2 and methane. Or maybe a planet orbiting so close to its star that its surface remains permanently molten, the vaporized remnants of its once rocky surface forming a diffuse and hazy atmosphere that trails behind the planet as it literally evaporates under the yoke of intense irradiation. So all these weird and wonderful archetypes, and probably a lot more, exist out there in the galactic wilderness, a realm of strange and enigmatic now, as we start our detailed survey and characterization of exoplanets in earnest, as it once was when we knew of no planets other than those of the solar system. In the case of exoplanets, anyway, I think it seems that fact is definitely stranger than fiction. So which one do you think is the weirdest? Out of the ones you just listed, which one would you pick as you think in the weirdest one? Uh, well, I think those Chthonian planets, just because the fact that we actually, we know so little about the internal workings of gas giants, as we, as we mentioned, that having, then extrapolating that to what it, those, those cores would look like once they had been stripped of their atmospheres over, you know, three billion years, um, just extends that strangeness out into even weirder, into weirder realms that I can't, I can't imagine. But Hannah, as an expert in, in gas giants, maybe you can shed some light well, I think when you, you hinted at it before, I think you're talking about Coro 7, is that right? Um, which uh, is incredibly dense, very large actually, the radius is um, incredibly large. 
very close to its host star and there's no atmospheric detection of this planet when given its its size there really should be some kind of gas still attached to to this world um and that's really interesting there there is a number of other ones where we think that the atmosphere itself it should have been able to maintain some kind of hydrogen helium atmosphere around them but given the size of the planet given the gravity of the planet it should be able to sustain such an atmosphere but given the the solar irradiation it might have been blasted away and we are seeing cometary tails like you said before from other planets that might even be in this process so it's it's all a question i think of the timing that you would have to take to lose that amount of atmosphere you would expect this planet to have and whether or not that system itself follows that pattern so there's a huge number of things you have to think about for it and they are very interesting but then i am also very skeptical you can form a dense core um that doesn't maintain the atmosphere. It really depends on when in the disk's lifetime you form that. So if the gas is all gone already, then you're not going to be forming a gas-rich planet. So it, a lot of different factors we have to consider. Making them even weirder and even harder for us to give, get any more... Inter- like we, It's so much harder to get information on them using the techniques we're currently using, that is. Where does that name come from? I've not heard Chthonian before. Uh, neither have I, actually. It almost sounds... Uh... It's, it's far too good a name for exoplanets, right? Some, some non-exoplanetary scientist came up with that, I think. That's a geology word, that is, right? It may well be. Uh, if I'm honest, I don't actually know its origin, uh, but I, I, had to, I had to include it because it just sounds wonderful. Right, so up next for this month's concept, Hugh will discuss one of the most enigmatic and fascinating stars in astronomers' sights recently. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to talk about Kick. 8462852 or Boyajan star and it really is an old fashioned astronomical mystery this with twists and turns but despite what you might have read probably no aliens um so what's the deal with with Tabby's star with Boyajan star well it it starts with the planet hunters citizen science project all the way back in 2009 so every few months as the kepler data came in from the kepler space telescope um for each of the 150,000 stars that it was looking at it would send back light curves, that's the variation in light over time for each of these stars. And these were added over time to the Planet Hunters database. And then tens of thousands of citizen scientists poured over these light curves in order to find new exoplanets primarily. But the thing about the human eye is it's also good at finding weird signals, things that a computer, pro- a computer program might well just throw out as noise. So in the first release of data, these armchair astronomers found a weird signal, a deep asymmetric dip in the light from from Kick 8462852. And as more data piled in over the next three and a half years, more of these dips were found. Some of them followed by long, boring sections of, of sort of flat light curve, and others followed in quick succession by more irregular dips. So by the end of that four years, Kick 8462, I'm just going to call it Boyajan star, I think. It's <laughs> um, Boyajan star had dimmed more than 10 times, each one very different from the other. And those final 80 days were actually the most interesting, with deep and bizarre dimmings occurring successively. Some of the dips lasted weeks, others only days, some of them blocked as much as 16% of the light, and some of them only just a fraction of 1%. Uh, and unlike planets and binary stars, or even intrinsic stellar variability there was no rhyme or rhythm to these events they appeared randomly and then disappeared again for a long time Um, 
So Tabitha Boyajan, who is an astronomer on the Planet Hunters team, was tasked with explaining what was going on in this system. Uh, so she double-checked that the dips weren't caused by any sort of inf- instrumental problems with Kepler, and they weren't. Um, she took spectra of the star to characterise it, so looking at the colours and, and what elements are in the star's atmosphere, and found it to be an F3-type star, a little bit more massive than the Sun, um, but in most intents and purposes a boring star just like the other 149,000 in, in the Kepler field. Uh, they also took some, some high-resolution images to search for any nearby stars that could be uh, causing these, these weird effects. And in fact, they potentially found a uh, an, an M-dwarf, which is only a few hundred AU away, which could complicate things slightly. Um, they also looked at uh, the star in the infrared and found that there was no infrared excess you might expect uh, if there was any sort of hot gas or dust or even an asteroid belt around this star that... And those, those are some of the things that, that could be causing such dips. So that's quite an interesting thing to find. Um, so they looked at quite a, f- a few ways that the star could be um, could be made to dim like this. The first thing they, they looked at and ruled out was intrinsic variation in the star, so so-called RCB-type variables, which dim rapidly and then brighten again uh, on random timescales. But they could rule this out just because of the shape of the dimming was was far from symmetric. And they also ruled out other variations in stars just because of the lack of infrared excess and also the spectral type. Um, they looked, they ruled out any sort of variation on that secondary star they found just because it contributes only a fraction of 1% of the light, so nowhere near enough to cause these 20% dimmings they found. One other explanation they have is that there are dust clumps that periodically cross in front of the star causing these sporadic deep eclipses. But these usually have a hot disk around the star and this shows up um, like a lighthouse in the infrared and so they can rule out anything that involves sort of hot dust around Tabby's star. One interesting thing they found in in the signal was that maybe there's a 750 day cycle with a couple events at the start of of the light curve, uh, one or two in the middle and then this this, uh, active period at the end of the light curve. Um, And one way they interpreted this was it might be an orbit of 750 days uh, some some dust on this orbit that's been kicked off by a giant impact between a planet and and another companion or a, or a moon um, and that each orbit of this uh, dust cloud the dust is is evolving shearing effectively and causing this these different dips in the light but even this we would expect to see some sort of infrared excess and actually we if this if this occurred and uh, we see this evolution so fast we would just not expect to see this happen in only in one star in the Kepler field that's only observing for four years if this is the case then it kind of suggests that this happens 10,000 times for every star in the Kepler field in order for us to observe Um, so the best explanation they came up with was that there's some sort of planetesimal on a long period eccentric orbit and this has been broken up into a series of exocomets so comets around the star and these periodically cross in front of that star with a big cloud of disk following them um, and this causes um, the dips in light that, that the planet hunters initially found um, and in th- this is one way of getting around the infrared excess problem because these comets these are going to be cold these aren't going to emit infrared light 
Um, and of course, what really kicked this mystery from bizarre star to world famous problem was was the explanation of aliens. So, specifically, a paper by Jason Wright suggested that these dimmings could be the result of artificial material orbiting Boyajan star. That is to say, alien civilizations building large Dyson spheres around the star in order to catch the light from the star, and that these planetary construction sites are periodically passing in front of our, our view of Boyajan star. But he also mentioned in the paper, which I guess the media didn't read, that um, this would also put a lot of hot material around the star and cause an increase in the infrared flux. Although, of course, this didn't stop it doing the rounds on the internet for a few weeks last year, it does seem to suggest that there are no alien megastructures around Boyajan star. Um, and another mystery about this star was the fact that it's potentially been seen to dim. So after the initial... Kepler work, people went looking for Boyajan star in other data sets and um, Brian Schaefer went back to the photographic plates in the Harvard archive called the Dash archive and looked at all the way back to the 19th century the brightnesses of this star and they, he found that over the course of 120 years that the star had dimmed by around 20% and then another team looking at the same data refuted this and then that refutation was then re-refuted by Brian Schaefer. It, it's, it's confusing. Um, but in the meantime, Ben Montet was using the Kepler dataset to look for dimming himself and found that over four years of Kepler's observations, Boyajan star faded by 2%. So this kind of backs up the claim from uh, the Dash archive that this star is dimming. Although yet more archi archival data uh, within the last two months from Sonneberg in Germany suggests again, that there's not been much dimming since 1934. So, I'm not really sure what to make of that. But if these long-term dimmings are real, then it, it, it kind of um, it throws doubt on the exocomet scenario, because these, these exocomets, it would be hard to make them cause this sort of secular slow dimming as compared to the, the sharp um, eclipse events we see in the Kepler light curve. So instead it might point to a scenario where there's some structure in between us and the star, so in the interstellar medium, and this is passing in front of Boyajan star and causing these uh, long and interesting eclipses. So all in all, it's, it's a very confusing picture. So where does that leave Boyajan's star? Well, like most of the best mysteries, the weird dimmings of Tabby star remain unsolved. But... Um, Tabitha Boyajan has raised $100,000 on Kickstarter and to buy telescope time on the uh, Los Kimberes Global Observatory to help search new for new eclipses. And with all the attention and astronomical brain power working on this mystery, there's a good chance that, unlike some of history's best cold cases, this one is not going to stay cold for too much longer. Okay. Okay. That's a lot. Like, there's a huge number of things you just ruled out. But then they kind of all seem to open up their own questions as well. Um, I'm especially interested in the line of sight, something in the ISM blocking it. Wouldn't we then see the same dimming effect on other stars at that distance or further away in that line of sight? If it's coming between us and this star, then anything beyond that in the same line of yeah. sight is going to be blocked in the same way. So you should see dimming on everything else. 
So I guess it depends where it where in our line of sight the material is. Because if it's very close to the star... So if it's very it's, close to the star, then it's not ISM. It's some kind of Oort cloud or... But wouldn't that then, again, rather than an... Uh, well, the infrared excess of the Oort cloud is absolutely minuscule, so you wouldn't be able to see that. But surely the dimming would then become... Would be would be constant or uniform instead of getting getting dimmer, right? It would it would suggest. So that getting that dimmer assumes that there's some kind of growing opacity yeah. source. So that that material is getting denser, if it is there. Yeah. So there was another paper that I'm not sure I believe, but it kind of adds to that hypothesis in where they f- they looked at the eclipses and looked at the images from Kepler and found that during some of the eclipses the position of the star, so-called centroiding, shifted a little bit. So that normally in in Kepler, that kind of suggests that the dimming you're seeing is happening from a different star that's that's not the star you think you're looking at. Um, I'm not sure how... Uh, I've not read the paper, but it seems kind of unusual. But that might well, if it's blocking out that companion M-dwarf or any other stars in the background, um, then that might well help the hypothesis of stuff between us and the star i mean have we seen any that that level of dimming over such it's a very short time period yeah so it's uh something like a five sigma outlier um in all of the kepler stars so it's it's the only star in the kepler field effectively that dims by this much in in what was it uh two percent in four years so i don't know if we're going to solve this guys (laughs) it's kind of crazy no, I mean, like, it's really, it's really interesting. Of course, it's really interesting. And there seems like there's, you know, so many different things that we can learn. But as a statistical sample of one, it's incredibly difficult to bring any solid conclusions from that. Yeah, no, I agree. But we can get more than one, right? I mean, there are... Yeah, I mean, if there's one in the one in the... Kepler field, how much of the sky do we have to look at in detail before we find a second one? And these sort of dips, these like 20% dips, you don't even need a space telescope. So we've had ground-based surveys looking for transiting planets for the last 10 years, and in that data, there may well be other weird dimming events. And um, yeah, I'm looking, don't worry. (laughs) So next up, we have Hannah with this month's Exoplanet News. Yep. So this month, uh, we've once again been packed with a range of exoplanet studies, but uh, we've had all of the standard discoveries uh, from some ultra short period planets with the K2 survey, specifically the discovery of a double transiting system called EPIC 22067482 Yep. <laughs> We've got to come up with better names for these places. It, it will uh, get a, discover- K- a K2 name once it's accepted. It will get a K2 name once it's gone through the ring. It'll be K2 100 um, and something. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, then we also had discovery of a 5.3 Earth mass planet, which was done by Radial Velocity Survey. Uh, that was discovered around an M star, GJ536. And... Then another kind of discovery, but on a different kind of scale, we've uh, got a paper looking at the secondary eclipse detection of the hot Neptune uh, planet Happy 11b 
And we've seen this planet in transmission. We've seen it uh, transit a number of times with different surveys. And this is a detection of its secondary eclipse, so when it passes behind that star. And that was done using the Kepler mission and searching through all of the short cadence archive data that they have from that to find this very, very small uh, signal that they have from this hot Neptune planet. But it's uh, not just been a month of discovery. There's also been a number of interesting theoretical studies and instrumentation reports this month. And starting with a series of papers on the Next Generation Transit Survey. So I'm just going to go through a little bit of what those are. So the Next Generation Transit Survey, or NGTS, is the next generation of transit surveys uh, to be run out of the University of Warwick uh, in the UK. This is following the successful WASP and SuperWASP surveys, which are the wide-angle search for planets, uh, which are ground-based observatories which use off-the-shelf telescopes and cameras. So this is all based at essentially where, where Hugh is working. So he could tell you a lot more about the nuances of these, but I'll just go through the studies that have come out. So NGTS is the new wide-field ground-based photometric survey for transiting exoplanets, and it's been commissioned by ESO at Paranal in Chile. The aim of the NGTS system, uh, the survey itself, is to discover these Neptune-sized exoplanets, which the Kepler mission found to be the most abundant types of planets we should be expecting. So there should be lots of them. Now, NGTS will... Uh, conduct this wide-angle search across the southern sky to find these types of planets around bl bright, closer-by stars that are going to be able to be used for follow-up and atmospheric characterization, whereas a number of the Kepler ones are very, very far away and quite dim, so they're very difficult to do that kind of follow-up. So hopefully we'll get this population of these Neptune-sized worlds that are able for us to go look at again and see if we can characterize those planets a little bit more. Now, one of the recent papers that was on Archive looks at the yield estimates, so how many planets that they, they think that NGTS is going to find. So what are, their, what are the expectations of this survey? So the study was conducted by team members at the University of Cambridge and Geneva uh, using estimated yields based on one millimag precision. So this is the precision that we need to detect that planetary transit and the Kepler sample statistics to determine what we would expect from the survey itself. Uh, they found that after a four-year survey, NGTS is expected to detect one to seven super-Earths, 14 to 24 like sub-Neptunes, 12 to 20 large Neptunes. So Neptune itself is four times the radius of the Earth. So that's giving you kind of a bound for what those types of planets are. And then around 55 Saturn-sized worlds and about 150 Jupiter-sized worlds, where Jupiter's 10 times the size of the Earth. So a big array of different planets, but actually kind of looking at what the telescope's gonna be able to do with one millimag precision, you're gonna get this really great numbers. Um, and along with all of those planet detections as well, NGTS is also expected to find like this vast number of eclipsing binaries, which are the most common and sometimes like most difficult false positives to deal with when you're searching for exoplanets. And I know Hugh covered this in one of our previous exocasts. So, by the end of the decade, um, and you know, within NGTS's lifetime and, and with tests coming in as well, we're really going to be finding every single one of these Jupiters and hot Jupiters that are orbiting nearby bright stars. So we'll definitely have you know, that whole statistics on what are these nearby stars' uh, planetary populations in terms of these close-in planets. So that's really, really interesting. 
another paper that came out associated with NGTS is the uh, presentation of the prototype testing results for the telescope and its setup. So the, the prototype to test the final concept was built in the UK in 2008 or 2009, and um, it was tested in the Canary Isles on the Palmer. Now, the point of the, the prototype tests is to characterize what the instrument's like. So what are the noise levels? What's the background limit of these telescopes for the specific system that they're using as a setup? Um, and see if they can reach the required precision to do these detections that I just said, to give us those numbers of planets that they want to be finding with this, this survey. So they, uh, they try to do this technical feasibility of the survey and all of its setup. The testing was conducted over 100 nights um, and successfully met all of the intended goals. Uh, however, like any and um, all good testing, it came up with some areas that it needed to improve, which led to a full like re-review of the system's design, the CCD detectors, all the way to the, the telescopes they use and the mounts that they, they included. Um, and that's because they actually found some guiding drift, so this problem with where it's pointing in the sky and whether they can keep one of the stars, the light from the star, on a single point on that detector. Um, and they needed to correct some of the, the telescope design simply because they got scattered light problems. So you don't want to get scattered light inside your instrument because that means that you uh, aren't going to get the precision that you need. So after all of these, these testing, um, then they, they actually were able to improve it. So all of those things that I just mentioned have now been fixed for the final setup, which is now running in Chile uh, with the full NGTS setup. So hopefully in a couple of uh, exocasts time, we'll start be next year pouring in some new planets that are being discovered with NGTS, uh, discoveries that we can then point our nice giant telescopes at uh, and see if we can get some atmospheric characterization on these these much smaller worlds where we have very little information. Yeah, we, we have a few candidates already from NGTS, so they're uh, on in the pipeline to becoming planets, we hope. Um, I thought that might be the case. It's very exciting and I very much look forward to, to picking some of them apart and seeing what they're made out of. Uh, but as I said, there is also a number of very interesting theoretical studies on archive at the moment. Uh, a number of them have not yet got that little tagline that I look for saying they're accepted for publication. So we'll report on them in the, in the future. Uh, but one that's been through the ringer of the peer review that we have to go through every time we put a paper um, is a study on the impact of atmospheric tides on Earth-like planets. So taking a, a different look at things at the moment. Uh, this looked at Earth, Venus, and a host of like the parameter space that's going to be covered by exoplanets in this, this Earth-like terrestrial regime where you have a solid kind of core, a solid uh, surface of a planet, and then the atmosphere on top of that. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to determine those key impactors for this, the dissipation uh, and atmospheric dynamics for these small terrestrial atmospheres. So unlike the solid core of a terrestrial planet where the surface doesn't move significantly on the small observational timescales we're talking about, the atmosphere of the planet is essentially like a fluid that's, that's subject to this internal heat, external heat from the star, and also internal and external gravity. So the gravity of the planet itself, this solid, solid body across the atmosphere extent, and then also the gravitational force of the star that it's orbiting on that kind of fluid, this atmosphere around the planet. 
And what they did is they ran a series of models to really look at how changing a number of different parameters would impact the tides. Uh, this is going to depend on the rotation rate of the solid body of the planet, as well as the orbital period of the planet. Um, and that's going to have large impacts on this, this gravitational potential throughout the atmosphere. So from the surface of the atmosphere to the, to the furthest reaches just before it, it enters essentially space. Um, and in the true nature of a theoretical paper, it was filled with equations. Uh, in fact, this is one of the most extreme I've ever seen. It had 250 individually displayed equations in the main article with even more incorporated into the text, like the flow of the text, and then a multi-volume appendix at the end, which also had an additional 150 equations. So I can honestly say I didn't read it all, but I, I did have a look through, uh, look through the whole paper and look through the conclusions and discussions that they had. Uh, and it also actually included, for people like me, I'm hoping, some really informative schematics or cartoons, essentially, of the different impactors that they were describing. Um, and the final schematic I found really interesting shows uh, one of the main conclusions of the paper, where you have one scenario with a neutrally convective atmosphere, so atmosphere that's moving around, um, and strong torque on the atmosphere, so strong interaction between the rotation of that, that atmosphere, then your planet is kind of shown to be in a non-synchronous state of equilibrium. So the atmosphere is not going to be synchronized with the rotation of that planet. And then the second scenario was if you had a stably stratified atmosphere, so we've got a stably stratified atmosphere, where you've got this weak atmospheric tidal torque, you're going to end up with this spin orbit synchronization of your planet's, or your planet's rotation to your atmosphere's rotation, which is what we see here on Earth. So really interesting, the different scenarios. And they said that this is very akin to the differences between Earth and, and Venus. And whether or not we can make those kinds of measurements is another question entirely. But they do show throughout that the study matches a lot of the GCM models that they've been, they've been running. So you can make approximations on the physics uh, without having to run these full, really complex GCM models. So this could be important when we're moving forward and really trying to push the boundaries and understand these types of atmospheres. Are we looking at a Venusian type atmosphere or would we expect an, a stratified atmosphere like we have here on Earth? Because just the combination between the measured period of that atmosphere that we might be able to get uh, based on wind speeds and things uh, compared to the orbital period uh, of that it could be really, really interesting. But uh, as we get more and more of these terrestrial type planets, so a planet that we expect to be rocky based on its density, then these types of studies where we're really trying to understand how they couple together with, with the atmospheres themselves are really kind of important. So I found that one quite interesting. Um, but as eventful as this year has been, I certainly learned some things from that. Like I can never, ever even read 250 equations. Um, <laughs> Rather but, you than uh, me, Hannah. Oh man, it was it was intense. This this month's news was really interesting, and I'm I'm hoping that you know 2017 is just gonna give us a lot more as well. This year's been tough, and now it's time to adopt another nice happy planet into our family so it's Hugh's choice again and who knows what to expect so yeah so we've had what seven of these so far and I thought finally for the eighth episode I'd go for 
the first exoplanet ever discovered, which everyone knows is HD 114762b. Did you guys know that? Yeah. Yeah. 51 totally. pages. <laughs> <laughs> so the yeah. The, the classic answer to the first exoplanet is 51 Pegasi b, which was a uh, hot Jupiter found in 1995. Five. Um, either that or the pulsar planets around PSR 12 something something uh, found in 1992. But HD 114762b was found in 1989. So it predates all of those by um, by a few years. Yeah, it's that one. So in uh, the history is quite interesting. So in 1984, David Latham uh, and Sevi Ma um, proposed to look to push the limits of 1980s astronomical technology and look for giant planets around M dwarfs. Um, and as we now know, there's not many giant planets to be found around M dwarfs, but at the time they they had a look anyway. And they also observed a few standard stars, which were sort of unmoving, um, or at least so they thought. Um, were, were just stars in order to calibrate the radial velocity signal, effectively. Um, but then on another observing run, a few years later, one of these standard stars seemed to be behaving a bit oddly, and they went back and looked at the data they took in 1984 and found that there's an 84-day period there caused by a, a planet or a, a, an object of about 10 Jupiter masses or 11 Jupiter masses around this star. So uh, we tend to take 14 Jupiter masses around that as the limit for uh, what's uh, going from planetary to brown dwarf regime. So with a minimum mass of, of only 11 Jupiter masses, it's, it is the first planet candidate at least. But um, in the 1980s, this was kind of, um, it flew in the face of what we expected to find. So um, yeah, so it was much larger than any planet we expected to find, given that Jupiter's the largest planet we knew up to that point, so 10 times more massive than that. It's much closer to the star than, than any expected gas giant, at only 84-day orbit, so something like Mercury's orbit, rather than Jupiter's uh, period of 12 years. And it was also eccentric, whereas all the solar system giant planets are roughly circular orbits. So the community kind of didn't believe that it could be a planet, and... Uh, basically told Dave Latham that it was definitely a brown dwarf or something else, not as interesting. But then when 51 Peg was discovered five years later, people started realising that maybe this is the first exoplanet. Um, but again, we we, do, we still don't actually know whether it is a planet or not. Um, but Gaia, uh, so this astrometric mission, which is going to look for the changing position of stars, will be able to confirm, hopefully, if this is a planet or if it's a brown dwarf or if it's even a low mass star could fit the data um, so yeah that's why i've decided to adopt another planet that might not be a planet into our <laughs> pla i'm noticing a planets. trend Hugh. i'm noticing a trend <laughs> it is it's true it's a, it's a very interesting candidate i think and it, and it sheds some light on the history of exoplanet research as well what well, it shows the failure of human imagination is what it shows. And I think that in itself is fascinating. So I'm going to let you get away with it. But you've got to mix it up, Hugh. Like now, I don't think... <laughs> like nowadays, I don't think we'd be too... too um, we'd find it too controversial to envision a, a 10 Jupiter mass planet around a star like that, really. Um, but the fact that it was seen so... It is in the databases, in the exoplanet databases, if you sort by year then it's the first one that comes up so i mean they kind of 
at least partially trust it, I guess. So what kind of follow-up has it had since? Um, so people looked for, I think, phase curves and maybe some astrometry. So I think they've got a maximum mass of about 84 um, Jupiter masses. So, you know, it's, that's quite... That's, that's that's not a planet. That's larger than TRAPPIST-1, um, but the minimum mass that's... is, is 10, 10 Jupiter masses. So in oh, that range... Hugh, 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 Hugh. <laughs> We're gonna have to. It's on the exoplanet databases. You know, I'm. I'm just. It's, if anything, it's their fault. I picked this. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll let you get away with that one. Good. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another info-packed exocast. Next time, we'll be joined by special guest Duncan Forgan, an astronomer and SETI expert from the University of St Andrews, for a full-length episode that focuses entirely on our search for intelligent extraterrestrial life. So make sure you have a listen to that. And once again, if you can't wait till next time, you can check out all of our shows on exocast.org and on iTunes. And also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Bye for now. See ya. Bye. Exocast.